A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. When is a piece of evidence not a piece of evidence? When is a scientific paper not worth the paper it is written on? When is an analysis of an event incapable of measuring the impact of that said event? The answer to all of this, of course, is when all of the above are prepared by the government. The government doesn't seem to have a clue about putting together any sort of scientific evidence in which they can convince us or with which they can can convince us uh, of why they are doing certain things. Never in the history of research or indeed academia has the information used to define policy been so sparse, so misleading or so inconclusive. And it's not just me saying this, it's the ordinary people of this country uh, who have been polled by the Conservative Party about whether they're happy with the information they are being provided with. Yesterday, the Welsh First Minister, Mark Drakeford, used the age-old potential deaths figure in order to justify prohibition in his country. I say his country loosely, because it's not really his country, it's actually our country, where it will soon be illegal to sell alcohol in pubs. According to his statistical information, 1,700 people could die if nothing is done. Mark my words, the key word in that sentence is could. That's right. Mark Drakeford, the Welsh... First Minister says 1,700 people could die. Well, it might rain a bit later on, you know. You might get involved in a car crash. You might slip and fall over like Joe Biden and need to wear one of those boots because you were playing with your dogs. You might win the lottery. How about that? Doesn't seem to bother old Drakeford. Uh, Later today, Parliament, of course, will vote on the new tiered process uh, that we must all now live under. We'll be asking just how big the revolt will be with Nick Dubois. Because meanwhile, in Downing Street, the Boris Johnson minions have been busying themselves trying to justify their continued strangulation of the economy uh, by supplying, finally, what's called a secret dossier on the damage being done to society and business by continuing with the lockdown. And guess what? They have concluded the damage will be... Uh, they're not sure, actually. We're not. We're not sure. We don't know what how much the damage is going to be. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. Hilarious, isn't it? Coming up later on, uh, we will be moving to another subject. Uh, we'll be asking how is it possible that Myrid Philpot, who killed six of her own children, has been released after serving just seven years of a seventeen-year sentence. Pauline Latham, the local MP and former police chief Norman Brennan are going to join us to talk about that. And as ever, of course, you need to hear from you as we are about to emerge from this current lockdown and move into another. What are you hearing? What are you seeing? What are you being told? We'll be talking to a hotel owner who is incandescent with rage at what is going on because he can't open his hotel and yet supermarkets are still doing a thriving business. 03444991000. Also, given how important substantial food is, we'll also be telling you how to make a scotch egg just in case you fancy heading over 
over uh, to the pub for a substantial meal that goes along with your beer. And also, how about that Lewis Hamilton question? Every time you see this bloke, he's wearing a mask. He's now apparently got COVID. How does that work? Maybe somebody could explain. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I've often been accused of banging on a bit too much, and I'm afraid uh, I'm guilty of, uh, as charged, of banging on way too long in that opener, but I'm terribly sorry. It's just there was an awful lot to say, an awful lot of questions, an awful lot of things which remain unanswered. Let us go straight now to Nick Dubois, former Conservative MP, author of Confessions of a Recovering MP, uh, a new author of yet another book. I think his novel is out as well. Nick, a very good morning to you. Yeah, good morning to you, Mike. How are you? I'm very well indeed, very well indeed, but puzzled slightly by, by a whole raft of things, really, including uh, this so-called secret dossier the government has come out with uh, in which they've done some kind of um, sort of cost-benefit analysis of what is going on without really concluding anything at all. Well, to be fair, um, the, gov- the words government cost-benefit analysis don't <laughs> sit together very comfortably at the moment, do they? No, they really don't. But, I mean, it does seem extraordinary, doesn't it, that they can't... That they, one, they've taken this long to even sort of pivot to the position of, of admitting that, yes, there might be some collateral damage around all these lockdowns. Well, yeah, and, and look, let's, let's remember where we are today. We've got this vote coming up, which... Um, uh, was going to mark the end of lockdown as we know it, officially ending, I think, at midnight tonight. Mm. And, of course, all the attention now is on these new rigorous tiers that effectively, well, lock down a large chunk of the country yes. uh, to one degree or another. And the whole argument of MPs, uh, particularly MPs who are in constituencies where they are not particularly suffering very badly in terms of rate of infection or hospitalisation, and yet they find themselves in tier two and some in tier three, and they're saying, hang on, if we're doing okay, what's the real benefit of putting us in one of these higher tiers? There's surely going to be a huge economic cost, which in turn will have health effects. And so publish your data. What is the logic for having come to the conclusions you have reached about tiers two and three? And essentially, after much uh, dragging of feet, the government produced their so-called cost-benefit analysis with the only flaw that it contains no costs and therefore calculates no benefits of what they are doing. It frankly is a rehash of data that's already been in the domain. It will do nothing to quell the concerns of Conservative backbench MPs. Well, quite. And I mean, it's all very well saying you're working on data, but as, as Mark Drakeford uh, rather inadequately proved yesterday, you can say anything you like. You know, if you could say there will be 1,700 deaths caused if we don't do this, mm. then obviously mm. people are going to say, well, you better do it then. Well, uh, if you like, this is the so-called, uh, what people call the counterfactual argument, yeah. i.e. you're making one argument, but the counterfact is lots of people are going to die. Um, now, uh, you know, the, the counterfactual position of the government, and pretty much what Mark Drayford is saying as well in Wales, is that it's going to be really, really bad. Therefore, measure against our assumption it's going to be really, really, really bad, mm it's still worth doing. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, it, it's just not 
um, if you, it's almost, and, and I say this with a heavy heart, it's making a mistake David Cameron made uh, actually at times, which mm. is to take his backbenchers for fools. Yeah. You've got very credible people, a former chief whip, for example, Mark Harper, no natural rebel by any means. Um, and he is essentially saying, if you are going to impose the heavy hand of these sanctions that are going to put people out of work and leave us with long term um, uh, huge long-term health and economic mm. problem, produce your uh, assessment for how you got to that point for my particular constituency. Mm. And rather than do that, what did the government do? They put out on Sunday, uh, effectively, notice saying, by the way, anyone who doesn't vote for this will not be considered for at least two years for promotion to the government. Mm. I mean, how absurd is that? Well, that, I mean, that unfortunately seems to be the way uh, that the Tory party operates these days. You know, it used to be, as you well know, Nick, a very broad church of people's opinions, all of which could meld together and everybody could work in the same room. Now it's kind of it almost is creating compartments, uh, compartments even, well, uh, of, of, of its own making. The only thing I would correct you on there, Mike, and I do so with some trepidation, is virtually all governments threaten MPs that if they misbehave or rebel, they will not be promoted. But, um, you know, I think it's frankly uh, a heavy hand. Um, they should be embracing the sceptics, the so-called COVID recovery yeah. group, and trying to work with them. Look, people like Steve Baker and Mark Harper are not saying abandon all tears. Mm. Let's have a free-for-all. Let it run riot. Right. What they are really saying is, actually, you are, you are not sharing with us enough information so that we, we and our constituents can have the confidence that what you are doing is right mm. or work out that what you're doing is wrong. And therefore, as Tim Loughton, another former, a very well-respected child and education minister, has pointed out, People are not going to follow rules if they have no faith in the process that has been done to make them or they have no belief that they will work or they feel that they are being treated unfairly. Right. So really, the government have now got themselves into this position where the testosterone is flying around and they are going to do whatever they can to now hold MPs, um, uh, uh, you know, shall we say, metaphorically up against the wall, yeah. demanding that they vote to support the government. It won't work. There will be a sizable rebellion. The key thing to look out for, Mike, is will it, given that Labour are not voting, they've just disappeared into the ether, and if you like, probably not unreasonably concluding, let the Conservatives work out their own pain, look out for the fact, will over 40 MPs rebel? And if so, that is a huge flag to Boris Johnson that he cannot rely on his 80-seat majority mm to push through draconian measures against the will of his backbenchers. And that's what today will come down to. Yes. And a couple of observations there. One, let's talk about the Labour Party briefly, because I think it's a massive mm. abdication of responsibility from the forensic Sakir Starmer, yeah. you know, the man who's supposed to be, you know, the eminence Greece, who may end up being the next prime minister. Yeah. I think he's shown with this decision uh, that he is a lily-livered plank. Well, look, you do not get elected by several thousand, uh, tens of thousands of voters to go and sit on your hands, on your backside and abstain. You are there to make decisions mm. and stand and be judged by them. Right. And frankly, in a what Labour are doing here is they are taking a politically opportunist moment because they want to highlight the disunity in the Conservative Party. Yeah. 
Well, okay, under some circumstances, you can kind of understand that. When we are talking about the very livelihood and uh, uh, health and well-being of this country, I think it is just rather contemptible. Well, I, I think so, right because, because let's face it, these people are not there, and this is where Starmer makes a massive mistake. He thinks his job in life is to politicise ev- absolutely everything that he does, to point at the Tories uh, and shake his head and say, look at how awful they all are. But this completely, for me, removes any kind of moral authority that he ever has in the future, because let's face it, all of these Labour MPs represent the taxpayers of this country, the constituents of this country, the people who voted for them or didn't vote for them, and they all deserve to have a voice in Parliament and to tell all of his MPs to abstain in what is the most important vote currently going on in Parliament, in this British Parliament of ours, in which people's lives are at risk, I think it's shameful. Well, uh, you you put the point beautifully there. Now, a couple of things on this. I am rather anticipating, and I must admit, hoping, that there are some uh, Labour MPs who are going to ignore this and they're going to come out and vote on the measure. In fact, I think you'll probably see, uh, I shouldn't say this because the forecast is not my game, but you <laughs> could see anywhere between 10 to 15, maybe 20 Labour MPs yeah. oppose these m- measures. So we're going to have to look closely at yes. what happens. Well, they but will all get a big, a big hello from me if that's what they do. Well, your, your broad point, your main point about this is that actually um, it, 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 we are not sending MPs there to dither and sit, sit on their hands on the green benches, pick up their salary and have no responsibility that goes with it. And we should remember that those that are abstaining we're under the orders of the leader of their party on the issue facing this country, the only major issue of concern um, uh, 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 facing this country. Uh, that they're prepared to sit on their hands. I think it says all we need to know about Labour. It does, indeed. And as far as the Tories go, I mean, this is meant to be the kinder, gentler version of the Tories after the departure of Dominic Cummings. I think that's what I was told a couple of weeks ago. What's happened to that? Well, put it this way, um, and I always caveat this, Mike, because, uh, and you you will probably disagree with me on this, I must admit, I'm, I'm kind of relieved on the one hand I'm not having to make the decisions that are being made. Mm. But what, what I think is driving this... Um, uh, this 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 current um, issue with with the backbenchers that Number Ten are having, it is not just blown up out of nowhere. It has been brewing since the election uh, of in December 2019. Those heady days when Boris Johnson stormed the country with his 80-seat majority. You know, you don't get people like Sir Graham Brady, one of the most measured Mm. people in Parliament, most experienced, chairman of the 1922, who invariably does not take a public stance on many issues simply because he has that role of being chief shop steward, if you like, of the backbenchers in the Conservative Party. You do not bring out someone like Graham Brady, who is virulently opposed to measures and at loggerheads with number 10 on them, without actually um, a prime minister and government that are in danger of making the same mistake that so many who have gone before them have done, Mm. which is not work and respect their backbenchers. The reset that was meant to happen after Dominic Cummings' departure, because he did not have a good relationship with um, backbench MPs... Or anybody else, it would seem. (laughs) <laughs> to be fair, um, you know, that reset is not going well at the moment. And it is again, there is this hint that they are being taken, backbenchers have been taken for granted and potentially taken for fools. And that's evidenced by the fact that we promised to give you an impact assessment. And then, well, one thing they haven't produced is an impact assessment. 
Now, the other thing that's interesting about those that, those words, impact assessment, I've actually forgotten whether Boris Johnson has now finished his period of quarantine, whether he's actually back in the House of Parliament today uh, or whether he's not. And that tells you an awful lot about the uh, the, the presence of, of, of a once incredibly charismatic and powerful man who, if you had not noticed whether he was there or not, uh, you would have been surprised. Now, it doesn't really matter. Well, he is going to be there. He is going to be leading the debate uh, when it kicks off later today. He's going to open up with it. I suspect, I don't know, someone like Michael Gove is going to wind up. Now, he is normally quite popular with mm. the parliamentary party, but he's done himself no favours um, by, um, by, uh, uh, by his, um, his uh, shall we say, his, his moves. He's been one of the more draconian members who virtually, it seems, wants to lock down virtually the entire country. And he's certainly not carrying mm. any favour in the way that he's currently handling his relationship with backbenchers. But you're, you're quite right with the front team are going to be out there today. It's going to pass, Mike. The government know that. What, what actually will um, be interesting is the fact that Labour are staining and the fact that the government will get this measure through. Just every MP who's on the government payroll, if you like, has to vote for it. So it's just going to get through. Mm. There's no doubt about that. Is whether that will encourage more rebels to think, OK, well, it's definitely going to get through. We know Labour are standing. Maybe I will put a marker in the ground because not all for example, of the self-declared 70 MPs who are in this group led by Mark Harper and Steve Baker are necessarily going to vote um, against the government. It doesn't work like that. Mm. Lots of things um, stop that happening. But they may feel that they've nothing to lose now, that it's not such a big issue because they know the government to go through. And, of course, what we should remember this is there's, this is kind of all or nothing. Because if the government did lose this vote, then they're going to have to scramble around to put other legislation in place, other measures in place. Yeah, otherwise it's all off, right? Otherwise it's all off. So, uh, you know, it's it's kind of high risk, but not high risk. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that pretty much sums up the entire state of things at the moment, really, doesn't it? Nick, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Nick Dubois, former Conservative MP, author of Confessions of a Recovering MP and fledgling novelist, of course, as well. The big vote is later on today. Boris Johnson emerges uh, like a butterfly from a cocoon later on. Uh, He's been in uh, quarantine for two weeks. Will he look any different? Uh, Will he look any bigger? Will he look any smaller? Will he look any less useless? We shall see. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Coming up, uh, we're going to be taking some more of your calls on all manner of things, of course. We're talking about uh, Michael Goh's visit to the pub as well that he was telling Julie Hartley Brewer about. From what we can gather, the 24th of September seems to have been the date at which table service was first properly introduced. And so it must have been before that uh, that he said he saw people standing around uh, at a bar because, of course, he's the one who's pushing this idea that you must, in fact, have some kind of substantial meal uh, if you're going to go out drinking because somehow that's going to control people's behaviour better. Let us see uh, whether that is going to be the case. Let's say very good morning, though, first of all, to Pauline Latham, uh, who is Conservative MP for Mid-Derbyshire. Pauline, very good morning. Thanks for joining us. Morning. Thanks very much. I mean, I'd like to talk to you about the whole uh, lockdown scenario, but but let me just ask you, first of all, uh, about Myreed Philpot, who is the uh, uh, the woman at the centre of um, an awful lot of conversations at the moment. She was released um, relatively recently, we discovered at the weekend, um, after serving seven years uh, for a 17-year sentence. Um, and it is one of those horrendous crimes that, that caused an awful lot of uh, angst at the time. 
you know, for any mother to have been involved in the deaths of her own children, six of them, uh, in a fire which was which was really very ill thought out. Um, it seems to be horrendous that she's now able to come out after having served so little time. Well, I thought the original sentence was light, considering six children had been murdered, yeah. and coming out after so such a short time, I think it is really a slap in the face, really, for um, the justice system. I don't think it's appropriate that she should be out so soon. I, As I say, I thought it was too soon uh, with the sentence she was given, but mm. to come out automatically halfway through is just not appropriate. I mean, it's less than 18 months per child. Yes. Now, those children are dead. They're never going to return. They're never going to live their lives out. We can't change that. But I think we should have changed the ruling for her because she may have been the junior in this decision to set fire to the house, but she was there. She was complicit. She allowed it to happen. Mm. And, you know, for whatever reason, which I think no mother can ever understand what it's like to lose children, six babies, really. I mean, little children, mm. it's just appalling. And she should never come out. And I have written to the chief constable asking that she never comes back to Derbyshire yeah. because the people in Derby will never forget that atrocious act, will never understand it and will never forgive her if she was to come back. And I mean, her life will be in danger. Mm. But we are we are paying for her change of name and personality. We're paying for all sorts of therapy. I understand she's doing yoga therapy. Well, that's nice. Well, lots of people would like to do yoga therapy, I think, for all sorts of reasons, not least because of the lockdown and the stress that it's causing. But she's having it at our cost, and I just think it's inappropriate. And we, we can never forget the deaths of those children, but she should not be out now. She should have had, in my view, a life sentence for each of those children, mm. which would have meant she'd never have come out. No. And I mean, you will know as well as I do, Pauline, that there are people in the criminal justice system who, you know, maybe well-meaning people, maybe sort of the, the, the kind of people you would quite like to have around for dinner. But they're very, very misguided on a lot of this stuff. And they think um, and they misjudge for me the mood of a nation when they allow people like I mean, Maxine Carr was a, was a similar one where she was granted a kind of change of identity. But every time uh, she went anywhere, people spotted her and there was a problem and there would be a sort of, you know, potential public order situation going on. Mm. And I wonder and I fear whether this will be the same case here. Well, I think so, because people can't forget what she looked like right. unless she has plastic surgery, which, you know, is pretty drastic. Um, I, I just feel that she should not be allowed her freedom. She didn't allow her children to have their freedom to grow up. So she should not have that freedom. Mm. No, I think that's absolutely right. And those same people that I was talking about have this kind of uh, obsession with rehabilitation. And yeah. I'm, I'm afraid I'm a little bit old fashioned when it comes to these kind of matters. I don't really believe you can be rehabilitated if you're willing to do something like that and commit that kind of crime, put your own children in that sort of situation yeah. and that kind of risk. I mean, I'm sorry, I don't think you need to be treated as if you have the same rights as everybody else. No, and I mean, obviously, there's a, a, an element of she must have been unhinged. She mm. couldn't have been acting normally. I mean, there are cases in prison sentences where people have done something fairly minor 
can be rehabilitated and I think where they can that's appropriate mm. but I I don't know how you can in this case no. she's she has just done one of the most or did one of the most despicable things that anybody could ever do never mind a mother mm. and I just find it unbelievable that she's out so quickly yeah and i wonder whether we can change anything here because norman brennan uh, who's a campaigner on, on the side of victims says that you know we often hear politicians saying we must do something about this but then nothing really ever happens is mm. it more likely that we could campaign successfully um for people not to be released before the end of their sentence rather than well, anything yeah. else i mean Politicians say this regularly. We, you know, we'll make life means life, but it doesn't change. No. And I think that it also we do doesn't mean life in this again. country, does it? No, and we we need to really think about that. And I think there should be a review of the sentencing laws. People, I, I accept that some people need an incentive to behave whilst they're in prison, but half of their sentence. What's the point of giving them um, double her sentence? And she gets out now. Mm. I mean, it, it, it's not logical to say to somebody, well, you can have 20 years or 25 years or 30 years for life, but you can be out in 10. Yeah, it really I doesn't, mean, it's, it doesn't it's not, make any There's sense. no logic to it. There's no. absolutely no logic. And I, I don't know what happens in other countries, but I don't think they're as lenient as we are. Well, I certainly know what happens in the United States. In the United States, life actually does mean life. If you're sent to prison for life without parole... You die in prison. It's as simple as that. And I wonder um, whether that is somewhere we should go, because this Conservative government uh, is criticised for many things, including, I'm afraid, um, its promise to, to, to be strong on law and order, because that's one thing that hasn't really been strong. No. And I mean, I, as I say, I've written to the Chief Constable about her coming back to Derby, but I've also written to the Attorney General to look at her sentence and see what the Attorney General thinks. I mean, mm. it can't be changed now, but I think that this is a clear illustration of where the government of whoever, whichever government was in, in power at the time, it was wrong. And I think what we need to do is change it. And there aren't many right-minded people in this country mm. who would think differently. No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, well, let's 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 keep our foot onto the the gas on that one, and let's try and see if we can yeah. get something done. And I'm very happy to help Paul in any any way that I can. Um, Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the vote today. Um, you've previously said that you're not entirely happy with the uh, the reasons given by this government for the lockdown that we're about to go into. Uh, your uh, MP for Derby, we actually spoke to a a pub owner from Derbyshire just last week who owns five pubs around Staffordshire and, and Derbyshire. And he said basically he employs 250 people. He can't open his pubs because they're all in tier three. Um, and unlike the last time he was forced to close, basically he isn't allowed uh, or he's not getting enough money uh, to, to, to not lose any money, if you like, because he has to pay national insurance for, for all of his employees. Yes, I mean, that's a huge problem. And it is because of the hospitality businesses um, that have contacted me locally, but, but also nationally, because I really do feel that we've got to get some common sense into this. Yes, we don't want people crowding into pubs, but they have got to be able to trade. They can't survive this lockdown. Mm. And it's all right being told, well, you'll be making a decision again in nine weeks. Many of them won't exist in nine weeks time because they don't have the funds it's not a lot of money to be made in the pub industry anyway right. but what they need to do is survive this because we need i mean pubs are part of the fabric of this country we need those pubs 
and other hospitality businesses, whether it's a local coffee shop or whatever, it's very difficult to survive if you're only doing takeaways because not everybody's out and about because we're being told to stay at home as much as you can. So they're not trading in the ways they normally would. And all these businesses need to trade in the run up to Christmas. Mm. And it's not just... Um, people like pubs, restaurants, cafes, whatever. It's also places like wedding venues that haven't had a a proper wedding since February, March, Mm. and they're not going to have one for the foreseeable future. They cannot survive because they may have staff furloughed, but as you said, they still have costs. They have costs of the building Mm. to maintain. They have to pay their, you know, all sorts of bills that are still there because they can't leave a building empty and cold they've got to keep it heated so they've got costs that they cannot avoid and they're the people that i am very concerned about and there's also the loneliness aspect Mm. of people in this country many many people many more than used to be live alone and so they are incredibly lonely after five weeks of lockdown they need social interaction with people you can do it responsibly and socially distanced but you actually need to have that space and and so many of these businesses have spent tens of thousands of pounds making themselves covid secure for what point I know. they're not allowed to open I they've mean, spent that money and it's supposed to be covid secure but they can't open exactly right and a lot of people feel that they are somehow being targeted i mean when you see what mark drakeford's doing in wales basically banning alcohol sales in pubs, which seems bonkers to me. Same in Scotland. You know, it's almost as though there's a kind of willingness from the powers that be to stop us all from drinking, which, of course, is the great British pastime. They're never going to do it. Exactly. And pubs, as I said earlier, are the fabric of this country. They're where you meet people. If you live on your own, you can go in there and feel safe and you can go and have a chat with somebody else nowadays socially distanced you can do it safely so i really do think the government have got this wrong it's and it isn't only the industries at the front of this it's the supply chain as well Mm. i mean you've got to look at local breweries i've got three um craft breweries in my patch they're really struggling because they can't supply pubs they're selling them off sales which is good that they're doing that but it's not enough and we've got the run up to christmas which is when all of these businesses will be incredibly busy but we're told well you can make a decision at the end of january for february Mm. they won't be there many of them no they just won't exist no it's absolutely shocking so will you be voting against this uh, today then At the moment, yes. I still have to wait to see if there are any more concessions that will be uh, given by the government. I mean, a lot more money needs to go into the pub industry and the hospitality industry, including wedding venues. We can't forget those. And we need that money. We need to know about it today because tonight I shall be voting against unless there is some sort of concession. Right. And as far as you're aware, I know it's always difficult to, to predict these things, but how many of your fellow MPs do you think will join you? I would have thought something between 50 and 70. Really? I don't, that, that's I, a massive number, isn't it? It is a massive number. I don't actually know. Mm. There's a meeting later on today of us to have a chat about it. Okay. I mean, if we if we lose this vote, then clearly I will be campaigning in my patch to make sure people adhere to the rules because I don't want COVID to spread and I've never wanted COVID to spread. If we are stuck with tier three, and, and that's the, there's some illogicality to that. We went into the into tier two willingly 
to try to get the virus down. We were in Tier 1 in Derbyshire. Yeah. We decided we would accept Tier 2 before we were asked to. So we had a couple of days of that. Then we did the lockdown. Right. We did the lockdown. We've had five weeks where the rates have been dropping, but now we're in Tier 3. Right. There's no logic to that. No. And I, I like logicality, and I like to know the facts before I make a decision. Yes, I think most people are the same and they can't understand mm. why there's such kind of inconsistency in the system. Mm. You know, we were talking yesterday about Leicester, for example, which has been in some kind of lockdown, really, yes. uh, since the beginning of, of, of the whole business, since March, really. Yeah. Um, and yet nothing has changed. And you go, well, maybe that should tell you, should it not, that in, in, that, in their case, lockdown doesn't work. Exactly. And, you know, Wales went to, into a lockdown before we did mm. and... I don't think that that made a huge difference because they only did two weeks. But we cannot lock down the country forever. We have to look at the overall situation, the loneliness, the suicide rate. We've got to look at people whose businesses are being so drastically affected as well as COVID. Mm. And COVID is one issue. It's a big issue. But we have to look at people who are dying from cancer, from heart problems that are not being resolved. There's all sorts of other things that need to be taken into account as well as COVID. I don't want to overwhelm the local hospitals, but I haven't been shown where the local hospitals are being overwhelmed because the numbers are dropping. Mm, I think you're absolutely right. Pauline, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed uh, for taking the time uh, to spend with us. Pauline Latham, Conservative MP for Mid-Derbyshire, eminently sensible, uh, eminently straightforward and really an example to all MPs as to how you should operate and what you should say and how you should say it. I take my hat off to you, Pauline. Thank you very much indeed. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company. United Healthcare insurance plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare insurance plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk 
Radio, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Well, right now, though, let us talk uh, to Des Collins, senior partner of Collins Solicitors. It's World AIDS Day today, um, and some uh, of you may have forgotten or may never have known about one of the biggest um, sort of health scandals that happened in this country a very, very long time ago, back in the 80s, when something called Factor Eight. Uh, was um, a blood product which was sold basically from the United States of America into Britain and it was used as an anti-clotting factor but unfortunately for the poor people who were in receipt of it what they didn't know was that the, the donors who were being used in the United States many of them were drug addicts many of them were homeless some of them of course uh, had the AIDS virus and passed the AIDS virus on to many people uh, as a result in this country and it's still um, a scandal that's still going on. There's an inquiry which is going on, which is due to continue until next year. Let's talk to Des now and find out where all of that is. Des, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much for joining us. I mean, I suppose for a lot of people, this happened long before they were even aware of uh, themselves or, or aware of the scandal uh, itself. Tell us a little bit about the background to it. The, the background is it all happened uh, in the 80s, uh, largely when uh, you had two things coming on stream at one time. You had AIDS coming on in the early 80s and almost at the same time the development of factor products which was which were there to uh, con- blood concentrates effectively yes. so that if you were, if you were a hemophiliac and you bled, then you had to be rushed into hospital and, and, and hugely complex procedures going on. So the idea of concentrates meant, meant was, was going to be a lifesaver for hemophiliacs. They could pick the stuff up, keep it in the fridge at home. If they had a bleed, then they'd go to the fridge, inject the concentrate, and they were fine. Mm. Now, that, that sounded like it was a, a new world for hemophiliacs, but the blood concentrates had to be, had to be collected from a, a huge blood pool. That blood pool became very, very large almost overnight. And in the States, they used to not have voluntary donations, mm. they, blood donations. It was all coming through uh, paid paid donations. And that's where the, uh, uh, the people with AIDS, the people with uh, hepatitis, etc., yes. began to infect the whole blood system. And it wasn't picked up in this country quickly enough. No, it really wasn't. And I suppose it wasn't picked up in the US either. I was in the US at the time. I remember going to Arthur Ashe, uh, Arthur Ashe's press conference. He was the, the tennis player who uh, had a blood transfusion while he was having an operation in hospital and contracted AIDS from the blood that was transfused into his body. And I remember it uh, like it was yesterday. Um, and I remember writing stories for the Sunday Times about it as well. But nobody was really screening um, the candidates that were, that were donating their blood or rather they paid to donate their blood um, at that time either. No, you're, you're quite right. Not only did it affect the haemophiliac community, it affected the, the whole blood transfusions, as with Arthur Ashe. Yes, right. Um, and you didn't, you, you, you had a, involved in a minor car accident. Let, let's say you go into hospital, they give you some blood, all of a sudden you've got AIDS. Right. I mean, it was, it was un... Um, it was unprecedented, and uh, the reactions to it were very, very slow. And that's why we're still um, at the receiving end of it today and try, still trying to resolve it. As you, as you say, there's a public inquiry going on yes. as we speak. And how long has that inquiry been going on? That inquiry has been going on now. It was set up uh, initially by uh, Theresa May in the mid no, no, 2017. Right. It's actually started hearing evidence from the start of last year. It had heard evidence for much, much of last year, and then, of course, with COVID, it had to uh, 
It's had to close its doors effectively mm. for about six months, but it's back in operation now and is hearing evidence, say, as we speak. And uh, even though that evidence is having to be held uh, remotely so that you can't attend, you've got to go on, online and, 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 and have the, the evidence zoomed, as it were, mm. Uh, it's still it's still hearing the evidence, and as I say, as we speak this morning, it's hearing evidence uh, 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 regarding the, what the position was in Scotland. So mm. yes, it's it's going ahead. I yeah. presume many of those who suffered as a result of this scandal, though, may not be with us anymore. Well, that, that's right. I mean, you're you're talking in the early '80s, so you're talking uh, 40 years ago, mm. and of course, a lot of the people who developed AIDS were, were uh, HIV were going to die. I yeah. mean, they died very, very quickly, and they very often died leaving families completely bereft, not only emotionally but financially. Yeah. And they uh, they've they've had to uh, to carry that burden for 40 years, and. To some extent, uh, their children have had to carry that burden. I mm. mean, I've, we, we act for about 1,400 people, and we've taken statements from most of those people. And the tragic thing is that very often you find that the children have suffered almost as much as the parents. So you have, you have a father developing AIDS, dies, and then the child at that time is, let's say, 13, 14, com makes complete mess of his schooling or her schooling, mm. and then looks back when they're 40 or 50 and say, well, I, you know, I, in the words of the film, I could have been a contender, but I wasn't yes. because I was completely thrown off key by the, uh, the epidemic and the fact that the... Uh, National Health Service, well, it's the Department of Health, actually, um, didn't recognise and didn't realise what it was doing at the time and, to some extent, still fails to do that. And mm. that's, why the, that's why the inquiry is, is running as we speak. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, there was no suggestion that the, the, the NHS knew, uh, the National Health Service knew that the, the, the blood products were tainted, but they probably should have done. Is that your position? Yeah, that, that, that's you, you. You you summed that up very well. Yes, the, there's 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 no no suggestion whatsoever that this was deliberate. But what what did happen is that the as it came on stream, as the knowledge developed very very quickly. I mean, if you were around at the development in the early eighties, the AIDS came out of the blue like a thunderbolt. Mm. I mean, one moment no one had heard of it, and right. the next moment it was all all over the television. And it, the Department of Health didn't react sufficiently quickly to uh, and 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 make sure that the 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 hemophiliac community and people who were going to receive transfusions and the general course of events were properly protected no by, by no means was it deliberate but we say it was negligent and that um, uh, they should have the the uh, the customer if you like deserved better and didn't receive that no and have any of those customers uh, and or victims received any type of compensation to date uh, the word compensation is a word which the the victims hate being used. Um, uh, I, 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 I very okay. often get told, told, no, sorry, I just didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, very, I, I have to school myself never to use the. the no, word that's fine. That's, that's absolutely fine. What's, what, what, what do they prefer? What, 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 they, what they, they prefer that they've received ex gratia payments. Right. And what they say is an ex gratia payment is a charity. Mm. They haven't been, they haven't, there's no one recognised what their position is or prayed. Paid proper, realistic financial compensation. Mm. There have been trusts set up in the past, voluntary trusts, 
uh, which the government has paid money into and the victims have been able to take money out of, mm. depending on the, the, the views of the trustees at any particular time, but they have to make applications for, for that money. So you have someone whose life has been ruined by this, mm. and they're now 55, and the, uh, the fridge breaks down. And um, they, they apply to the trust for the money to pay, pay for the fridge because they can't work because they haven't moved uh, for, for obvious reasons. Right. They can't work. They need a new fridge. They apply to the trust. And the trust is saying, well, go and get six um, different quotes for fridges and come back to us in three months' time. And yeah, then we'll yeah. look at it once we have another meeting. And it's that sort of uh, almost inhuman treatment yeah. of, of the victims, which uh, which has served to, uh, I suppose, served to make... Uh, to make sure that they have fought on for 40 years to um, to, to turn it round. Yes, it's a terrible, terrible situation, really. So what are you hopeful of um, when the inquiry finally ends, if it ends hopefully sometime next year? Well, what we are hopeful for with the inquiry is that it will make recommendations to, and now I use the word as it should be used, to compensate the victims for what has happened to them. Um, the, we, there was a similar inquiry set up in Ireland uh, some years ago, and that's what happened in Ireland. Mm. The, the inquiry reported said, no, this shouldn't have happened. It was negligent. It wasn't right. And then the government in Ireland paid a, a substantial amount of money. I haven't got the figures in front of me, but in, into a uh, fund. Mm. And then you made an application to the fund for all that money, but not on an expiration basis. You went with, not with your cap in your hand, you went saying, I have been harmed uh, in the normal course of events. I am now entitled to compensation of this sort of money. And the, the, uh, and the assessment was made. So that's what we're hoping will, will happen here. But uh, the inquiry is likely to go on for another year or 18 months. So we've got a, a, a fair, fair, fair way to go yet. Yes. Well, it's been a long road. I suppose there's no reason to rush the ending of it either. Des, thanks very much indeed for talking to us. Des Collins, senior partner at Collins Solicitors there on World AIDS Day, telling us about the terrible tragedy of people who were infected with tainted blood without knowing. Um, and it caused many of them to die because uh, they were haemophiliacs, they got AIDS and they didn't recover because there was no recovery. Uh, back then. What a terrible, terrible story. And for it still to be going on, seems incredible. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it came to my attention yesterday uh, that a man by the name of Stuart, who's a hotel owner, uh, was not terribly happy uh, with his lot in life. And I can't say uh, I blame him because basically uh, he, he sent out a tweet uh, in which he showed a lot of people busily uh, shopping in a local supermarket, not social distancing, all touching various products before uh, not putting them in their baskets and taking them or putting them in their trolleys. Uh, my hotel, he says, is COVID compliant. Guests sanitise their hands. It's a one-way system. They're two metres apart. It's a 100% table service, but we're forced to close. It's not fair. Stuart, very good afternoon to you. Afternoon, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Not at all. I mean, I really do feel for you. I, sp I speak to a lot of people in hospitality. I've got friends who have businesses, uh, pubs, restaurants, that kind of thing, nightclubs. Um, uh, in London, happily for, for them, at least they can open tomorrow. Uh, but presumably you are in a tier three situation, are you? We are. For my, for my hotel in Birmingham, yes, we are in tier three um, and, and by the one in Kenilworth. We went from tier one in my other hotel to tier three, um, so we went into the restrictions in tier one and came out in tier three, which, again, doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, it just seems to be the restrictions being imposed 
upon hospitality just uh, are completely unfair. They're unjustified. And any remaining life in the sector is just completely being squeezed out of it. Right. And it doesn't seem, as you say, fair at all, does it? Because if you are COVID compliant, as all the places that I've been to uh, since March, which have been open, are, you know, I mean, Michael Gove this morning was talking absolute rubbish when he was on with Julie Hartley Brewer saying that he'd been in a pub recently. We were trying to find out when it could have been where people were standing at the bar, ordering drinks, moving around. I mean, every pub that I've been to since its opening in July, you have sat at a table. People have come to your table. You haven't moved around. It's very, very safe. Mike, Michael Gove is talking absolute nonsense. What we need in Parliament, what we need now is a minister in Parliament representing our industry. Yeah. Be- because, to be honest, they haven't got a clue. They really have not got a clue. I mean, guests would walk up, uh, walk into our hotel. They're greeted with a mass COVID-compliant member of staff. Right. We have a one-way system. They're taken to their tables, which is socially distanced and bubbled accordingly and appropriately. Right. Uh, they will order their food and then they leave out the one-way system. There isn't a safer place right now to be than in the, in the mm. uh, hospitality industry. And, and again, what people seem to forget with hotels is the fact that most of the bars within the hotel are actually lounges. Right. So it's a hundred. Our, our venues are a hundred percent seated, and the government are telling us they told us before that you know when the curfews came in, and we took seventy percent of our trade between nine and 1am right they told us at 10pm we had to kick all i guess out and had to go and sit in their rooms mm. It's madness. It's, it's, it's just madness. madness. And it doesn't seem, I mean, also, there's no evidence, by the way, Stuart, for any um, um, spread of COVID specifically in hospitality situations. I mean, there just isn't. I, again, I, you know, again, try and look at the evidence. And um, I looked at the, the evidence that the government released uh, last week, which is the transmission risk in the hospi- hospitality sector. And I actually thought it was a spoof. Mm. I honestly did, because there is no evidence other than it seems to be their evidence is based on well if it's happening in indonesia then we'll just copy whatever they're doing over here because there is not one shred of evidence i mean i think the cases within hospitality was two percent yeah I mean, it really does beg a belief. And the, the, the video that you posted was shot, I presume, in a local supermarket where, I mean, people are wearing masks. But as we've been talking about this uh, uh, this week, you know, who knows whether that makes any difference at all? We were saying Lewis Hamilton appears to caught COVID. Every time you see him, he's wearing a mask, you know, so <laughs> what that's all about. But, but you know, we've got um, a very busy shop uh, in your video that we see. People yeah. uh, walking very close to one another because I think one of the things actually about people wearing masks is they, they think they're okay to walk close to you now absolutely absolutely and, and and it's again if you're sat at a table and you are socially distanced uh how is that how, how is that you know how are you more vulnerable yes. at a table as opposed to walking through the, a supermarket it just, and so i think most of us in the industry it just doesn't make sense nothing adds up mm. uh, and without that financial support the sector is going to go crashing it's going to come crashing down it will i mean have you been able to be open since july basically until until the, this most recent lockdown well interestingly enough we did open and and uh, we had a quite encouraging august uh, and we thought fantastic but right. Then, then all of a sudden we started to hear sort of speculations of curfews and mm. instantly uh, people started to cancel. And again, a lot of people don't talk about Manchester. Not many people talk about Birmingham. Yeah. 
huge hospitality sector that's that's it's catastrophic what's happening in Birmingham yeah. right now. Well, I must admit, well, when, when they announced last week what the tiers were going to be, I was quite shocked that Birmingham was three. Well, do you know what we lost initially? We we lost uh, we lost bookings. We lost seventy percent almost overnight of any bookings that we had. And then, obviously, we've spent the past few weeks now. As soon as it was as soon as it was announced that we we're in tier three, we've spent the past week just cancelling reservations. I mean, it's so disheartening. Yeah, and is that? I mean, were you having people staying there as well? Uh, yes, people booking and staying at the hotel. Right. I mean, you know, what, what the government don't seem to realise as well, if you're going to have a busy, busy Christmas, we're probably we're advertising in September yeah. and you're building up to Christmas. You need a good Christmas to survive January and you need a good Christmas to survive February as right. well. Without that, January and February is hopeless. Yes. And what level of compensation are you getting as, as of uh, tomorrow when, you, when you're supposed to shut? Well, the government have offered... Three thousand pound a month, uh, and if, if, well, if you if you think about it, costs just basic costs for us for one hotel is twenty thousand pound a week. Wow! And is that paying all the staff, paying all the all the bills and all the rest of it? Yes. Yeah. Right. So that so you've got to make that before you're in the in the black, as it were. Yes. Right. That's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, this is the bit that you don't get. And this is why I was so incensed when I heard Michael Gove talking this morning, because I'm of the opinion that most of these bozos in the cabinet, certainly, I'm, I know there are other MPs who, who are better than this, but they don't go anywhere. They've never been in a pub or a restaurant that's that's not in Westminster, that's not in a sort of high-end situation. They don't know what it's like. Mike, it's an abs- honestly, it's an absolute travesty what's going on in our industry at the moment. Yeah. I, an example would be a few weeks ago, one of my uh, one of my closest friends, who's a, a chef, um, his his wife actually had to cut him down from a beam because he tried to hang himself. Goodness, um, and this is going on. You know, I know three or four people in the same situation. Yeah. Um, and the problem is, on that same day, Boris released a statement about his ten point plan for a green revolution, mm. and. And, and and you just they're so out of touch yeah. with reality. I know at the it's so it it's so appalling, isn't it? And I, I mean, the thing that yeah. I'm surprised at, and I'm really pleased that we've got you on, Stuart, because we like mm. to talk to, to ordinary people, ordinary working people who are just trying to get by. Because I don't yeah. think enough people realise what it's like. I mean, it's it's been very easy for me to sit here in the studio doing shows every day because you know I'm lucky enough to have mm. a job where I can do that. But so many people that I know and I talk to just don't have a clue what next year is going to be like for them. No, I mean, again, we, uh, my, my brother and myself, working class kids, we started with nothing, we're cut a very long story short for you, but we built our business up to be a multi-award winning business. Yeah. Uh, just before this all happened, we invested heavily and uh, we invested heavily in our second hotel. We extended the bedrooms, so we invested over a million pounds into this business right. based on projections. Now, all of a sudden, you, that, obviously, it didn't, it didn't happen. We had to close. Well, your projections uh, weren't any more inaccurate than the government's ones, I'll tell you that. No, well, how on earth are you supposed to secure any other investment now with no opening in sight? And they don't seem to get this. No, exactly. And they, and they can't really tell us because they're not in control of it. And the idea that they keep pretending they are in control of it and every time something good happens, they make out that it's down to what they did is rubbish. Because quite clearly, they haven't got a clue. I mean, Leicester, for example, has been in lockdown for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and nothing's changed. So any sensible person who was not an insane, an insane lunatic would think, well, maybe it's not working. 
Well, you would think that, Mike. You really would. But, I mean, Conservative Party used to be the party for business, and they really, they, they're not our friends right now. No. Um, I'm very disappointed, know. actually. They haven't been the party of small business for a long time because I think even George Osborne put paid to that. The amount of red tape that you'll know about and, and the amount yeah. of taxes that small businesses have to pay is quite prodigious. It really is. And if we don't secure the investment we need now, the industry is going to come. I mean, it's the fifth largest industry in, in, in the UK. If we don't secure the investment, it's going to collapse. Mm. Are you able to get ha your hands on any grants? Because I know a couple of my restaurant friends were able to get a grant first time around of about, I think, 20,000, 25,000. Are you able to get any of that? Uh, first time around, we were able to get a grant, but there's even rumours now Birmingham are not going to uh, not going to get the funding that's required. So yeah. that doesn't make it any easier. Right. Um, so, yes, first time around, one of the venues got a grant, but the other one didn't get a right. grant. Yes, and they've rather skillfully have they not sort of handed it all off now to the local um, sort of councils rather than coming out of central government. So you then have to chase somebody else for it. it yeah, absolutely. It, it, they've made it as difficult as possible. Mm. It's exactly the same as Seabills. When Seabills was first released, it was, you know, it's the small print. They'll come and stand and, and tell you, um, they'll come and stand on the lectern and tell you all, all the headline bullet points, yeah. but it's the small print that really counts. It's so difficult to get this this money that you need to survive. Mm. So, I mean, difficult question to, to answer, really, but what um, can you hope for? I mean, can you hope that in two weeks they might revise it and get you back to Tier 2? Oh, well, Tier 2, I think, for the pubs is OK. I think for hotels, there's going to be massive a massive amount of job losses, Mike, in Tier mm. 2. Tier 1, you're going to save all the jobs. Right. Uh, and we know that we can open safely in Tier 1 and provide that security that customers require. Tier 3, thousands, millions of people are going to be unemployed. It's yeah. going to be horrific. It really is. Well, listen, Stuart, I, I can only wish you the best of luck and, and thank you so much for talking Thanks, to us. Um, and Stuart... that's not including the supply chains, Mark. So, no. Sorry, I just wanted to mention yeah, that the supply, the, the knock-on effect of supply chains mm. is horrific, whether that be the farmers. Uh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I know, it doesn't bear thinking about it. I mean, Stuart, I, 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 my heart goes out to you. Thank you so much for talking to us. He owns the Edgbaston Hotel, the Kenilworth Hotel, cocktail lounges inside those as well. Um, as of tomorrow... A lot of people are going to be in Stuart's situation because so many areas are in Tier 3 still, right, despite the fact that there doesn't appear to be any evidence to suggest that they need to be. All we're hearing from the government in the last two days is that the, 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 the R rate's falling, that the numbers of people getting sick falling, the numbers of people going into hospital falling, the number of beds available um, actually rising. There are more beds available now than there were this time last year. It doesn't make any sense. And guys like Stuart, who are the backbone of this economy and the backbone of this country, are being punished. And they're not in any way, shape or form being compensated. Two to three thousand pounds a month, as he says, for a business that needs 20,000 a week to break even. It's pathetic, isn't it? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We've been... Uh, uh, what's the word? I've completely forgotten the word now. I was going to say marauding around. Um, they're all laughing next door because there will be a perrier, I'm sure. Uh, on Friday, you'll have to wait. Um, yeah, we've been sort of mo moving around the area of pubs and hospitality. We spoke to a hotel uh, owner 
who said that he's uh, absolutely beside himself with grief because he can't open his hotels. Uh, he's got to shut them. He's in tier three. Uh, we've heard of pubs that aren't allowed to open. Uh, we've heard of other pubs that are allowed to open as long as you eat something substantial. Yesterday, we were told by a government minister that that could be a scotch egg. So we thought, what better than to do uh, how to make a scotch egg with Dean Edwards, celebrity chef, author of Cook Slow, Light and Healthy. Dean, uh, welcome back. Very good afternoon to you. How are you, Mike? You okay? Yeah, very well indeed. Last time we spoke, it was uh, the launch of your uh, fabulous book, uh, which I've cooked quite a few things out of. My favourite so far was that South African, um, you know, the the sort of the beef Ah. burger in uh, in cabbage, which was great. Yeah, the frikadels. Yeah, the frikadels. There you go. I saw the picture up on Twitter. Yes. Absolutely fantastic. The kids kids loved it as well, which which is, I think, the first time I've actually eaten cabbage. I'm not sure if they realised that's what it was. (laughs) But that was all great. But, but, I mean, uh, you must be, like many people, slightly frustrated at the way that the restaurant business is currently going because I'm going out tomorrow to a friend of mine's restaurant for the first time, obviously, since about about a month ago, I suppose. Um, and uh, that's not an issue as to what we're going to eat there. But a lot of people going to a pub, this substantial meal business seems to be uh, driving everybody crazy. Um, what's your view on that? I mean, in your, in your experience as a chef, I mean, do people act differently when they're drinking and not eating? I mean, I don't think they do. Well, you know, I, I think, you know, the hospitality industry in, in general has been made an absolute scapegoat. And, you know, I've, I've a lot of friends in the industry with restaurants, pubs, which they're just banging their heads against the wall because there are no clear directions or answers. And, you know, it's 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 a really, really tough time. Um, but, you know, when it when it comes to eating and drinking at the same time, who's to say how how hungry you need to be you yeah. know, to, to fill that gap? Mm. Um so some really, really strange um, things coming out. And obviously one of them being the scotch egg being a substantial meal. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've had many different types of scotch egg because, as you know, I'm a big fan of Borough Market over the road and they've got um, a ginger pig place there, which is a fantastic butcher's. And they they do all sorts of scotch eggs. I've been to restaurants where they'll do like a they've done a haggis scotch egg. I've had, um, you know, venison scotch egg. I've had a black pudding scotch egg. Um, and I've actually always wanted to know how to make one because I've never made one. But I've bought some sausage meat um, and it's in the freezer. Right. And I'm going to try it sometime before Christmas. I'm going to try and make my own. OK, so, so you know, they're, they're actually fairly simple if you follow a few uh, stages. And, and actually, you can you can cater them for your your own taste. So mm. get the best quality sausage meat that your budget will allow. And you can, you can go with flavors at this point as well. You know, you could go for a nice kind of pork and apple or, or something with a little bit of chili in it. Um, even some chorizo or maguey sausage would be absolutely perfect as well, just to get that additional flavor. Um, but it really does start with good quality um, sausage meat. Right. The next step, you need to boil your eggs first. So for me, the eggs go into a pan of cold water and always the eggs from room temperature as well. Right. Bring it up to a boil and cook for five minutes. And that way you'll have a slightly runny yolk. Right. I don't like it too runny, you know, it gets a little bit messy. Mm. Yeah, well, that's that's always been a kind of a mystery to me as to how you make a scotch egg where if you go to a, you know, like a nice restaurant and you and you cut it open and it has still that kind of runniness to it. And you think, I always think, how the hell do they do that? You know, it's it's all about timing on the egg. You Mm. want to undercook the egg, basically, right? um, which, which is a key. You want it to be firm enough for the whites to be set so it's easy to peel. Um, so as soon as it comes out of the water, it needs to go into a bath of ice cold water. Right. And that stops the cooking process. I was going to so say, do you have a, you you have a trick yeah. for that? So so when you've, when you've done it for five minutes, you basically, do you drain it or do you just take the eggs out with a spoon? How do you do it? 
Yeah, take the eggs out with a spoon, pop it straight into a bowl of ice cold water. Okay. And, and leave that in there for 10, uh, around 10 minutes and that will stop the cooking process. Right. So that, that's really important if you want that lovely runny yolk mm. inside of your scotch egg. Okay. So the next thing you need to do is portion up your sausage meat. Now, I recommend about 100 grams per scotch egg and that makes a nice substantial scotch egg there. Okay. Um, so a great tip to be able to um, to do this nice and tidily is get a couple of sheets of cling film. So right. lay a piece of shing, uh, cling film on top of your worktop, pop your, your, your sausage meat on top, another sheet on top of that, and then you can actually roll it out so it's a really nice, even layer. Okay. Um, if you flour your eggs once they're peeled as well, that will help the sausage meat adhere to the egg. All right. Um, so remove the top layer of cling film, and then use the bottom layer to pull up around your egg. You can almost shape it within the cling film, okay. which, is, which is really, really good for you know keeping everything nice and clean. Right. Um, another tip I will give you is pop that into the fridge as well, and that will help the, the meat set. So it's right. less likely to break And just up. keep when, it in the cling film, I guess, right? You can keep it in the cling film at that stage, or you can actually remove it, pop it onto a tray, yeah. um, and, and cover that up and pop it into the fridge. So in, in not... terms of like the thickness of the of the sausage meat, is it probably what, like sort of, I'm going to say old, in old money, I'm going to say like an inch? Uh, I would think an inch is probably a little bit too much. Is I, it, I, right. I, would, I would almost say around a centimetre, a centimetre and a half. And that way you're right. going to get the meat cooked through nice and quickly. Right. Um, so once you get to that stage, it's all about the breadcrumbs. And so uh, you need to pan it, which sounds quite posh, but it's basically you roll the sausage meat in flour, yeah. seasoned flour, into egg, and then into breadcrumbs. And then that's, that's basically ready to go. Okay. So the key for cooking it, you know, I think there's only one way to do it. And if you're having a scotch egg, you need to fry it. So set your oil to 170. And that's going to cook for around seven minutes. Okay. And that way, that gives the, the meat time to cook through, and the egg should should still be nice and runny. Right. And how do you cook it? I mean, do you, are you talking about just a small amount of oil, or is it you're not? Deep no, no. It's, it's, you do need to deep fry these. Oh, so you're deep yeah. frying it, right? So yeah. does that mean you have to cover the actual egg then, the whole thing? Yeah, really. So you know, that's a lot of oil, to... then, isn't it? It is, it is. Um, you know, you can use it for, you know, if you want to serve some chips alongside it as well. <laughs> um, but I wouldn't re recommend overloading it. If you're doing four eggs, right. do two at a time. You okay. don't want to take the temperature of the oil down too much. It's, it's better to kind of, because they will hold their, their, their heat as well. And actually, yeah. a scotch egg is quite nice. Cold. I mean, if, if I'm going to go through this whole process, it's probably worth me getting a, a proper, like, chip pan, isn't it? Like, is it yeah, is it... yeah. You, so, you can, you, there are two ways of doing it. You can either get these deep fat fryers, which actually regulate the temperature for you yeah. or you can do it old school you can do it in a pan of oil now you can get little thermometers which will tell you when it's around 170 right. um, but a good way to test if you drop a little bit of bread in there um, it should kind of take around 20 seconds to go really nice and kind of golden brown okay and that will be there or thereabouts around 170 see i the worry i would have if i got myself a chip pan is i'd just be using it all the time to deep fry everything <laughs> <laughs> Start deep frying the old uh, Mars bars and uh, celebrate St Andrew's Day. You know what I mean? But yeah, so so I mean, if you don't have a, a, a special pan like that, um, you, you've got to be quite careful if you're using that much hot oil, haven't you? What do you, you do? What do you do with it when you finish with it? Yeah, so absolutely. Um, you know, never fill your your pan of oil more than a third full. Okay. Um, you don't need to have an incredible amount of oil in there that looks like it's going to cover the scotch eggs. Because right. once they go in, they obviously displace some of the oil and it will bubble up around it. So never okay. more than a third um, okay. in, in terms of the size of the pan. And actually, you know, you can reuse this oil. So you can strain it out, um, 
use a, a funnel to pop it back into uh, a container once it's cooled. Okay. All right, brilliant. Well, listen, I'm definitely going to have a go at this, uh, Dean. So the next time I see you, I'll let you know how it, how it all went. Yeah. If I haven't burnt the house down, uh, we'll be <laughs> I, I want to see results. <laughs> Great stuff. I'll put them out. I'll tweet them out to you. Dean Absolutely. Edwards, thank you very much indeed. Celebrity chef, author of Cook Slow, Light and Healthy. Uh, now, that is as good of an explanation as I've ever seen by someone who wasn't actually showing you how to do it. So I hope you've been taking uh, notes. I hope you've been paying attention. And if you do decide uh, to try and make a Scotch egg, I want to see it. So if you're on Twitter or Facebook, I want you to send me the pictures of what you've just made. Um, I'm going to try and do it. I don't know if I'll do it this weekend because it might be there's some other things going on. But I will do it soon, I promise. Uh, coming up, we may be seeing Boris Johnson. At the moment, I'm looking at a, a, a small rodent crawling into a river. Uh, so it's definitely not him yet. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.